Hi, book club members. I'm Jen. And I'm Carrie. And this is Warhammer 40k Book Club, where we read for McCrag. This is episode number 40. And our episode, and our book is Requiem Infernal by Peter Fahavari. It tells the doomed voyage of an Adeptus Sororitas sister and a preacher question mark question mark as they return to the world of the last candle we posted several questions on our website wh40kbookclub.com for our listeners and we encourage participation in our discussions via youtube our site wherever you listen to podcasts and encrypted vox channel spoiler warning if you haven't yet read this book definitely check it out and then come back to this episode before proceeding because we're going to be talking about it we're going to be spoiling the whole thing as we go through it uh, we'll be talking about it in great detail from start to finish. With that, let's finally get this show on the road. First off, did you like the book? All right, I want to say something. I know we said we make this quick, but I have to say something here. So. Let me get the booze. Believe me when I say, when Jen struggled reading this, I was like making it in my motivation to like this book no matter what and be like Jen's a horror snob you know this this is really not that bad you know I really enjoyed it I went into that with that attitude I hated this book and I feel like living color hated it hated it <laughs> um I so to give a little color to Carrie's uh commentary there you may have noticed that i have the hardback of this i was so excited for this book when it came out on paper it had everything that i wanted in a horror novel and i was really surprised or i was very supportive of the horror line in general when it first launched and i tried to read it i got about 50 pages in and i just couldn't do it i just wasn't feeling it and at the time a bug in my room um at the <laughs> time i was like, that's uh, so apropos <laughs> <laughs> uh, i um at the time, I was like, oh, maybe I'm just not feeling it. And then back in like January or February, I stumbled across a, a Reddit thread that basically proclaimed this to be the greatest Warhammer 40k book ever written. And all these other people were like, oh my god, it is. And so I got on Goodreads and I was like, oh god, I better read this again. Like, I was being unfair. I got about 100 pages in and I just couldn't do it. I mean, I was a third of the way through the book and I couldn't. So I put it down and then we decided to read it for the podcast and because somebody had requested it and I was like, oh, thank God, maybe now I'm in the mood for it. And no, I also hated this book. Um, And honestly, I think if I would have just plowed through it in the beginning, the first time I read it, I probably merely would have disliked it. But given all of that color commentary, Hated it. Mm. Um, so, okay. And I want to, I want to also want to say that I think for Carrie and me both, the disclaimer before we go into this conversation, I understand why people like this book. I am definitely not saying it is a bad book. It just didn't strike a chord with either of us. So please keep that in co- your, com- your mind as we go through with this. And also know that as devout Warhammer 40k fans it kills both to have disliked this book so vehemently so let's really quickly take a nice positive note and talk about what parts of the book did you like uh I liked the commissar oh god I 
I really didn't like LaMarche at all. That surprises me. I thought, I just, he was very pragmatic. And um, I think he was a little, uh, he kind of let his feelings on the way things should be get in the way of, you know, how he was seeing Toland Feist, especially. Um, did he have some points about that, you know, that the lieutenant should really be in charge and not Feist? Absolutely. But he was a little too eager to get rid of this guy. I agree with that. Um, when you word it that way, yes, I, I can totally agree with it. Um, I didn't really like his character that much, but he wasn't necessarily wrong. And he wasn't like this mustache twirling villain no. in the background. And I do, I did understand his complaints with Feist as well. I think he had his men's best interest at heart. I mean, especially about halfway through the book and definitely uh, near the end, like when he's asking about Feist and Sister Solanus is uh, like, oh, right, he passed away. And uh, so Lamarche says, I see. And then his head is, I see a lie. Yes. So he asks her not to tell everybody. And, and I guess mainly because he doesn't believe it's true. He wants to get, before she gets everybody all upset, he wants to find out the truth. So he yes. does, he, I really do think that even with how he viewed Feist, he really did have everyone's best intentions at heart. I agree with that. I, I actually do agree with all of that. You're saying you're kind of softening my opinion on him now that you're saying all of that. Um, similarly, I liked sisters uh, Genoa and I really liked sister Indrik. I thought the description of her face was amazing mm -hmm. when they're like, oh, yeah, she's just kind of your average look. Oh, no, 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 no. She is not at all. When they're talking about how the geometry is just off, mm -hmm. it reminded me of... Um, Oh, who was that guy from the Ravener books? Remember how they talked about how the his his the proportions and the symmetry of his face were off? The guy who used the unwords. Oh, um, yeah, that guy. Yes, Moloch. When he talks about like how they talk about like how his eyes and his nose and, and nothing quite lines up mm -hmm. right. Um, I don't know why. As much as I hate the two wide smiling thing. The concept of that, of the face being just off, is one of those chaos concepts that I always really like. Um, so I thought that was really cool. And I thought Sister, Sister Genoa, similar to LaMarche, I thought I thought she was just a nice stalwart character. Mm -hmm. um, she was one of the few people in the book where I was like, oh, pumpkin, I'm so sorry you got wrapped up in all this. Yeah. You deserved better. <laughs> like LaMarche. Yes. Well, the whole breachers deserved better. Pretty much all of the preachers, even Toland Feist, he was just Toland okay, Feist I was just kind of him. a hothead. I didn't, I didn't either. He was just a, he was a very passionate person. He was brash, but having read a lot of Imperial Guard books, I'm, I'm pointing back at my Gaunt's collection, he just reminded me of your typical kind of blowhard, hot-headed Imperial Guard guy. So there was a line later on when LaMarche is like, oh, he always was the cancer at the heart of this unit. We're never shown that. Well, like I said, I think that's, again, because it's going against what LaMarche thinks how it, the unit should run. That could be, honestly. And I think the other problem is, is that, because we don't know exactly what happened 
on Razor on the on that Razor world. We get some. No, we don't. We get some, you know, glimpses a little bit into it. But I mean, as far as Lamarche sees, perhaps it was because of his brashness that some of this stuff happened. You know, I, I mean, Lamarche doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would just instantly hate somebody for for no reason. Uh, Correct. Um, although I don't know, because you know where else we saw this in this book? Do you remember when Jonah keeps talking about how stupid Camille is and how dumb she is and what a fool she... Mm-hmm. Where was that opinion coming from? Okay, but that was Jonah. I'm talking about the, the Mars. No, I know, but like, yeah. I, I just, I feel like twice in this book we were presented with these, like, this person's clearly awful. This person's clearly stupid. But we haven't been shown anything. Like, we just have to kind of agree with them, right? Right. Tolan Feist is a cancer. Well, I guess. I don't know. Right. Okay. I, I see what you're saying there. Although with Jonah, I yeah. think it was because Camille kept like, do you know what you're doing? Is this what we're supposed to be doing? And he was just like, she's dumb because she's not listening to me. There could have been that. Speaking of that, or actually, were there any other parts that really stood out to you that you like? Um, hmm. I guess it made me laugh when LaMarche and Solanus were arguing over the armory. I laughed out loud. That was funny. That was humorous, at least. <laughs> that kind of stuff frustrates me, though. Like, I... It's it's a trope that I hate in horror movies. It's a tro- Actually, it's a trope that I hate in any type of movie. When, like, we are clearly in danger. Help us get out of... Da- well, no, that's against the regulations and rules, and I really shouldn't. We are clearly in danger. And it's just I just like difficult people. The reason why I thought that was so funny is just because all this chaos is going on. And yet this one sister, which is, you know, kind of what some of the sisters are known for is just rules. Rules and regulations. And the fact I did like actually at the end when they were doing like the checks to see if they were clean or not. And she's like. This is just, this is the breaks. Mm-hmm. Can't take any chances. Like, I did like how pragmatic she got there. Right. She was another character, actually, that by and large, well, no, I can't say that. Never mind. I was going to say, by and large, like, maybe she was just kind of a practical sort that got wrapped up in all this unfortunateness. But no, then I remembered back to the, he passed away. But at the same time, though, maybe, she, maybe she thought she he did. I think so. I really believe that she just, that's what Batari told her. And so why would she question the sister superior or whatever right. the hell she was? Uh, why would she question that? That I really don't right. think Solanus. I mean, I thought at that point that she did have malicious intent until the end. Right. And I was like, okay, I think she was just following orders. Right. No, I would agree with that. I don't, so I think if any of them knew what Batari was was doing there might have been a mutiny there might have been yes I we'll talk more about that in a bit because <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there uh, let's start so let's begin at the beginning um, I feel as though when approaching this book because really the book is divided into what I would call four key narratives there's Jonah there's Asenath, there's 
the candle world itself, and then there's the breachers mm-hmm. kind of going on there. So let's start with Jonah, because I feel as though <laughs> I feel a lot of so a lot of the bizarreness starts with Jonah. So overall, what did you make of Jonah's story? I'm sorry. Would you, would you rather if I called him Booker? Would that make it easier for you? It would not make it easier. Because he's clearly the protagonist from, from Bioshock, Bioshock Infinite. Infinite. Yeah. All right. So, and I feel like a, another disclaimer coming in here. We hated there Bioshock two, Infinite. There's there are two types of. There's two types of people in the world. <laughs> people who think Bioshock Infinite was like one of the greatest narratives ever told, and then people who d- disagree. We disagree. I uh, and this book was Bioshock Infinite. I had the same reaction in this book that I had in Bioshock Infinite. It wasn't at the moment at the lighthouse. It was when... It is always a lighthouse. (laughs) It was when they first really opened... When they're figuring out that we can't lift this heavy stuff. Which I'm like, why not? We're just going to tear open a new reality and the stuff will be lifted for us. Like, this is like the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And then sure enough when they did that it was like a real new reality where he goes in and he's dead and there's riots going on and even that guy they were trying to meet was not dead now and but he was fading in and out of existence and when I realized that they had really opened up another reality I put my controller in my lap and I bowed my head take a deep breath I was like you know Maybe they're going to do something wonderful with this because I hate alternate dimensions. I hate parallel universes. I hate parallel universes and I hate time travel. Right. They all kind of kind of look. I mean, time travel often opens up parallel parallel universes or alternate dimensions. (laughs) They really are. The the sister kind of comes mm-hmm. in hand in hand and that is just it's my kryptonite right there you bring in alternate Same. dimensions it's parallel universes whatever you want to call it it's my kryptonite and so and if I, you need a parallel universe to explain your storyline it is time to pump the brakes and turn this car around right and i kept thinking like oh they're good i really wanted to because i liked the first bioshock game so much I was like, you know, in Irrational Games I Trust, they're going to make this in a way that's really, that's really, really neat, and I'm going to appreciate it. And they did not. Instead, I actually, and I'm sure I told the story a million times, but I stayed up really late, because I couldn't stop thinking about it, because I was trying to rationalize it in my head. I was trying to figure out was trying to understand and t- tell myself that the way they presented it closed all the plot holes. But every time I rationalized one, I opened another. To the point, I'm now texting Jen at two in the morning because I didn't expect her to be awake, but she was. It's been like, I feel like I'm so alone with this game because everybody just, because I didn't know how she felt about it. Like, I, 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 I hate it. I just hate it. And I feel alone. And she's like, oh, because of the alternate dimensions? I'm like, yes. And so we're just kind of, then we ended up just talking through it. And while some aspects seem 
cool. Especially if you go back and you replay the very beginning with the twins. And he they're saying row. he doesn't row. Okay, you know what? That's kind of cool. Some of that stuff was, was, was kind of cool. But not enough for it to totally make sense and to have a decent story in the end. The uh, one thing I will give this book compared to Bioshock Infinite. So as soon as as soon as all the mirrors appeared and that is where I put the book down and just like I said Bioshock Infinite I sat there reading I was just internally I I, reading the book and they described all the mirrors I set down the book and I just and I even said to my husband I was like oh it's Bioshock Infinite. And immediately my husband started laughing and he was like, ah, oh, good old alternate dimensions, huh? Parallel universes, yes. And with just like a Bioshock Infinite, an infinite loop. He doesn't row. Loop. He doesn't row. The head, the, the coin toss thing, the whole concept of the twins. Um, the one thing I thought that at least this book had going for it with Jonah's story is that they do imply at the end you haven't really stopped anything Mm -hmm. this is just going to keep going and so that's the one thing I will say because at least with Bioshock Infinite they made the boneheaded mistake of trying to suggest that killing Prime Booker destroyed all the alternate universes which of course is impossible but (laughs) Booker Prime Um, I don't know how else to describe it um of course, that's impossible, but it because of where. Let's not ask me on Twitter. Yeah, ask me on Twitter if you want my dissertation on this. So, but at least I did like at least in this. He was kind of there was kind of this sense of, well, you've you've gotten this, so I'm glad you got this out of your system. I'm glad that you temporarily became a mild avatar of corn to displace the zinchi stuff but it doesn't really matter because this is all just going to start all over again and i will say really quickly with joe with in general with this book so i don't obviously i don't believe in numerology and stuff but i do find the concept fascinating Mm -hmm. and so like we'll talk more about this later with the seven how they kept mentioning the seven on the candle word i was like oh nurgle but I did like that was a scene that I liked with Jonah's story when he's destroying all of the mirrors and there's the nine rows of mirrors because nine is the number of zinch and all of a sudden when they're like nine no longer holds its sway eight holds its sway now it's like ah that's an interesting I I like that concept with Jonah's story but first off I called Mina being dead from the beginning I was like oh his sister's been dead since the the beginning of she does she did and sure enough, so when they revealed that his sister was dead, I felt as though there was supposed to be more of an emotional oomph there. And I don't know, maybe it's because we've seen that particular story beat and that trope played out so many times in so many movies and so many books. Uh, yeah. Like, when she called it, I was like, please no, because that's been overdone for one and two, that would make everything he's doing incredibly weak and pointless and yep. so when it came out that yes she was dead the whole time like I texted Jen like in all caps it's just like weak like you've just 
there's now no point to anything he has done. Well, and I had said from the beginning, and this is this is mildly interesting, but I feel as though I feel as though Peter Ferrari kind of forgot about this, or maybe this is just my interpretation of it. I had said in the beginning when I was like, "Oh, his sister's been dead the whole time," and Carrie was like, "Oh, you think so?" And I had said I was like, "Guilt's a hell of a drug." And so I thought that was very interesting that maybe this is just like his own perverse sense of guilt at having failed his sister has driven him toward this. But I feel like that kind of gets lost in there. And especially, so let's just talk about the ending. Uh, What's your interpretation of his ending? Is it straight up something out of Infamous or? Whose ending? His? Yeah. It's you from the future, Jonah. Mm. Or it's a version of you. Oh, God, I forgot about that. An infamous. At least the way they did an infamous, it was kind of cool. Uh, it actually kind of fit and made sense. And it actually just kind of made it a fun superhero story in, in a way. It did. In, in the end. A dark one, but still fun. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's a loop. Yay, we get he gets to go through this all again he's gonna go kill all those people that he mentioned all for nothing and he's going to get on this boat for no reason and continue and like what did he what did they say it was like 300 years or something like that i mean so 300 something years yeah yeah. so it's like okay so you're gonna be what's the worst groundhog day ever ask you this so he kept like there was a couple moments there at the end of the book where he mentioned about how important it was that he meets Sister Asenath. I got to the end of the book and I was like, what the hell do these two people's narratives have anything to do with one another? I have no idea. Other than they are happy, like, they they remind me of, like, two ships meeting in the night. Like, they kind of come along each other and they travel parallel and then they branch off. And their stories... They intersect, but never, like, in a meaningful way. Like, I never felt like, oh, he wouldn't have even been able to get here if not for Asenath. Mm-hmm. No. Asenath. Asenath. Sure. You guys, the name's really hard to say. Um, anyways. But he wouldn't... It, and it wasn't, like, one of those things where it's like, well, she never would have figured out the whole Sister Mercy subplot had it not been for Jonah. No. No. No, they were both just two people on parallel journeys, kind of, but never really intersecting. And so I think I would have liked to have seen more of that. I would have liked to have walked away being like, oh, this is why these two were important to each other. But I felt that way about a lot of the characters. Oh, my God. Yes. I like, can we talk about Batari? And what was the uh, point we'll of talk that? about? We'll talk about that a lot in a bit here because I feel like that's the most important what the hell moment. We'll get there in a second. But Jonah's story in the end, other than this man being in this constant loop, it was interesting. I guess. I guess we, right? But I, I mean, but I don't know. Other than being in the loop, like, what was he there for? It's like he saved the candle world. No. I mean, I mean, he didn't even save it in the Warhammer 40k way. I mean, there was... 
No. He doesn't save it in a no. Warhammer 40k way. He doesn't change anything. We're going to talk a lot about that. Um, he doesn't really change much of anything. Um, I didn't I didn't really get it other than... And here's another thing that at first I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. It's a little Matrixy, a little Dark City-ish. Actually, it really reminded me of Dark City. But where they... Um, with the memories. How the memories start kind of pre-programming in. Like when they first mention Olber Verdes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I don't know that... Oh, oh, oh no, he's been here forever. That was a neat concept, but also... Oh, yeah, the whole idea of the violation of memories. I really yes. kind of like that. But then I feel like, like Bioshock Infinite, there's a lots of really cool ideas that were introduced and then dropped just as quickly. Pretty much. And I felt as though that was one of many cool ideas. And here's... Here's one thing that I struggle with. So... I'm going to point to Pet Cemetery. I'm going to actually reference Stephen King a lot tonight, but I'm going to point well, to Pet Cemetery. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to point to Pet Cemetery in particular in this example because oh, because of the Indian burial ground. Because no, because of the um, because, <laughs> yes, um, but because of the cemetery itself, Stephen King never really explains what's going on with the cemetery. He just kind of leaves it up to your own inference. You know, mm-hmm. the Indians used the Native Americans used it for a long time. And then all of a sudden the ground went bad and it just kind of does this thing, right? So you can kind of like plug it in on yourself. But the the, re, the way that the cemetery works is not integral to the plot. Really all you need to know is that it's bad. <laughs> and they kind of explain that to you. Actually, you know, a movie called Looper does that really well too where in the beginning when joseph gordon levitt is kind of talking about it and he's like well how does this and how does this and how does this and bruce willis is talking to joseph gordon levitt but he pretty much looks directly at the camera and is like don't worry about it the science behind this doesn't matter okay Mm -hmm. that's fine i'll take that there were a lot of things in this book that i was like nah you've got to give me a little bit more of an explanation on this you can't just not explain it and be like it's mysterious. Mm, no. Like, I need to at least know why this was important. If, if you don't have That's to explain what, to me right. why the violation works. Right. That's what I was about to say. I was like, well, it doesn't matter to me how it works or how it does, doesn't work. But please tell me why this is relevant to my life at this moment. Right. Like, again, Pet cemetery. the cemetery. I don't need to know how it works. But I do need to understand why it's important to the plot. Which, of course, if you've read Pet cemetery, you know why it's important to the plot. They don't really go into that with this. There's a lot of little things that not only do they not get explained, they never really get like, this is how this fits into the story. It's just kind of there. Like a darling that didn't get cut. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. The well, violation was... I was like, oh, that was kind of a wasted opportunity, wasn't it? Yeah, because that never got explained. Like, I, and I mean, explain, like, I don't care how it happened. I want to know why it happened. Zinch is involved. I'll just take it down as some warp BS. I'm totally happy. Right. Just like, what was the point of it? I don't know how it helped. Or so, hindered. Or anything. Let's talk about Asenath 
and Sister Mercy. So their stories kind of unfold throughout the book. And this was another one that I called from the beginning as well. First off, you did not. Yes, I did. did I said, I was like, it's not a demon. I was like, this is her. This is like a multiple personality, her own friggin' guilt coming out of the out of her. And then sure enough. Here's the thing about this. Again, guilt's a hell of a drug. I liked the idea that Sister Mercy was like this. I liked the idea of her being like of Sister Asenath being so pent up and having so much internal rage and these emotions and this guilt that she didn't know what to do with that she created the Salter ego. I'm actually yeah, here's the problem with this. It's been overdone. Holy shit, you guys. Like, I actually thought that this particular trope reached its nadir in the early 90s when uh, Brian De Palma made the cinematic masterpiece Raising Cain. Um, what? With John Lithgow. Oh my gosh. Okay, so in terms of like hokey old Brian De Palma movies, it's actually not terrible because it's John Lithgow basically being John Lithgow. It's pretty awesome, actually. Um, at the time, it was pretty crappy because it was just kind of like a male version of Sisters. <laughs> Anyways, it um, there's a movie in the early aughts called Adaptation in which... Uh, it's, it's not like a great movie at all, actually. But one of the characters who plays twin brothers um, by a uh, Nicolas Cage plays twin brothers. They're both screenwriters. One of them's trying to write a highbrow story, and the other one's like, "I make a story where there's these three people, and one of them's a serial killer, but they're the same person." And it's a gag because the story has been done so much, and it's so over the top. That it is played, that entire plot and concept is played for laughs. Mm-hmm. And it's about the only funny and good part of the movie, if we're being honest. Um, I mean, like, can I count the ways of how many times that, I mean, I haven't seen as many movies as Jen has, but um, if anyone ever, if you remember that um, TV drama that was a really big hit in the um, early aughts, Hero, Heroes, there was a character that was based off of that entirely split personality like to the point where she actually would develop a tattoo when she came the other person and was a killer and would do anything that that she wouldn't do Um, I just recently watched the second season of Iron Fist on Netflix there's a character in there who is has three different personalities and one is this will shock you an assassin it is a concept that has been over i mean really arguably i guess you could probably uh, there were many many horror movies that came before ask me i'll tell you about them um but i mean really psycho which comes out in 1960 is arguably the most famous and infamous version of this right Mm -hmm. it's been done since then the idea of this killer second personality uh so I'm not going to say the name because this just came out and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I feel like if this is the first time you've been exposed to this trope, it's always the fun one, right? Um, Recently, a friend read a book and she was just head over heels in love with it. And she was like, you have to read this book. 
And so I started reading it and 50 pages in, I was like, oh, these two people are the same person, aren't they? And she was just like, how did you know that? Because I've seen this trope done to death. It was the first time she's not a big horror reader. So it was the first time she had been exposed to it. So she was like, well, I think it's brilliant. Yes, if this is the first time you have seen this magic trick. And you know what really I think the multiple personality thing is? I think it really is akin to a magic trick. Right. right? Where the first time you see it, you're like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you realize that there's a mirror under the table, you're like, oh, that's kind of cheap, actually. Right. I, and it just felt like it kept going well, over the top. And I knew it. By the way, I knew it with her, with her sister, the mother that she's writing the letter to. Um, the canoness. Yeah, the canoness. I was like, oh, this woman's going to be, they're going to reveal that Sister Mercy killed this woman too as soon as they started talking about all the people Mercy's killed. Boom. Mm. As soon as they said, like, why did you kill her? Well, I mean, as soon as you find out, I mean, I never thought it was a demon possession either. I believed it was a multiple personality thing and I'd hoped to God I was wrong somehow and but when she went into it was like yeah hey you remember the chapel all those brutal murders that was me it's like oh I'm so done with this because that has been done to death and you know and yeah. I'm like kind of akin to what Jen was saying so I had a Stephen King phase all right so there was we a phase uh, well maybe not Maybe not. Where I read a lot of Stephen King and it got to the point where I could pick up one of his books and in the first two chapters, if I knew what it was, I stopped reading it because it's not fun anymore at that point. And I didn't well, do that it's, with... It's the magic trick. Right. I didn't do that with all of his books, but there was like a period that he had where everything was kind of the same. As, it was. Yeah, so... I, I'm looking at you, Rose Matter. Yeah, Okay. We're just we're just not all right so just on, on top of that so this you know stephen king um man and jen and i decided to read amateurville horror for the first time uh gosh probably about a couple of years ago or so and we really wanted to read it because it was more like five or six years ago but go on sit i'm old we wanted to read it because it's a classic it's a classic everyone knows the story I actually saw the movie in college. That was a really cool concept. I heard the movie was based on a true story, but I was like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, moving on. And then the book was like, you know, based on a true story. I'm like, wow, okay. So we're reading this book that is probably the one of the most poorly written books I have ever read. And we're laughing all the way through. Exclamation it. points. Yeah. So many exclamation points. Revving like a hot rod. They said that not once, but twice. Maybe even three times. My favorite was when they literally unironically used the phrase it was coming from inside the house! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Now that maybe that was the very first time that that had ever been used. I don't know. You know, to be fair, right? It might have been. I mean, this was in the 70s. Um, But yeah, even my mom was like, oh yeah, we all thought it was real. You know, it's just like, okay, I guess that would explain why it's so badly written. If you thought this was real, then okay. But man, because I have that knowledge, because of the Stephen King, 
when I first read this book, when they when the flies happened, I was just like, oh, hello, Amityville Horror. And it just be, kind of came more and more like Amityville Horror. And then, of course, then the Bioshock thing happened. And it just kind of feels like if you, maybe if you like alternate universes and you didn't read a whole lot of Stephen King, if you don't know these magic tricks, as Jenna's put it, then I could totally see where this book would blow your mind. But right. to me... All I see is the same horror tropes. I'm not even this big of a horror fan, but I see the same thing. Like, I actually made a horror trope bingo card. Well, and so let me ask you uh, this about Asenath. Asenath. The sisters. Asenath and Sister Mercy. What? Again, I keep coming back to. What's her point? I mean, is it the only way we can show that she can be this pious little sister and be a badass at the same time? I mean, and uh, you guys, this is one of those things. This is a feminist critique that I took a feminist lit class in college. And I always being a huge Margaret Atwood fan. Margaret Atwood has pointed this out multiple times about female characters. There really are, when men write female characters, there really are only three characters that they write. There is the good, virtuous woman who would never harm a fly and just looks at the best at everybody and just wants to help people. There is, for lack of better terminology, I know that this term can be considered, I know it can get used in a bad way, but I think people know what I'm saying when I say there is the dragon lady, the woman who is crazy rule and manipulative the nurse ratchet character right who was clearly batori in this book where she is evil and she's conniving and she's cruel and then there is the irreverent badass bitch character who cusses at everybody and is just violent and wants to be she's really more akin to an unhinged male character who mm-hmm. was sister mercy in this book and when you look at when you look through that lens you start to see it more and more in these books so reading this book was very frustrating to me in that way because this all stems from the thought that a lot of male writers think that people won't like women female characters who are unflinching women female characters who and it's not to say that all men do this Mm because obviously they don't right right but a lot of male authors you can tell that they think like well people aren't going to like sister Azanath if she's if she has more of a backbone so i need to make her the virtuous good woman who's very soft-spoken and just wants to help everyone like it's very frustrating to me and that character more often than not is paired with the multiple personality who's this vengeful creature character and again i got to the end and i was like what is your point here other than to provide and maybe that's all the point was was just to be this commentary that look the world of warhammer 40k is it's dark it's violent it's terrible it chews people up and it spits them out and not everybody can handle that Right. Like we've seen these characters in multiple books that we've read. I would look to the Inquisitor of Mark of Faith, who Hmm. she has come out of this broken. Yes, but definitely just like, all right, what else does the universe have to throw at me? Azanath didn't have that. She cracked. 
I guess if it's just that is the commentary, I guess. But they just spent so much on the back and forth between her and Sister Mercy. And then the whole thing with Quirine, when she's on that Eldar planet and they're attacking it and the Eldar grabs her and she says Kareen because of the spirit stone thing. What was the point of that? Oh. Other than, at first I was like, oh, I get it. So they're going to say that she's been getting these hints all throughout time because it's cyclical and she has, she's retaining some of that knowledge. And then that's going to then help her do something later in the book. No, no, just, I mean, I guess yes, but not really. It, it didn't, it didn't, what was the point? What she was, this servitor that apparently was, you know, Kareen, who was probably an Eldar. Who knows? Doesn't matter at this point. Definitely an Eldar. Well, you know what I mean. I know um, what you mean. I didn't understand the point of her at all. <laughs> and, then, and then getting, like, her background, like, oh, by the way, she's definitely Eldar. It's like, cool story, bro. Why does that matter? Well... As soon as with the thing when she was fighting the Eldar, I was like, oh, okay, so then Corrine's Eldar. So then at the end when they were like, turns out she's Eldari. Yeah, I know. You told us that like 30 pages back. And she was more like 50 pages back. But I was like, yeah, no, we, we've been through this. So let's talk about, let's talk about the candle world and its denizens. Because the candle world itself, you guys, is a big trope in itself. If you are not American... If you are British, which Peter Fahavari seems to be, please weigh in on this. And I'm quite serious. Here in America, the it was built upon the ancient grounds has been done to death. Like Carrie and I were joking about the Indian burial ground because that is such a strong trope in American horror novels and mm -hmm. movies that like as soon I pretty much just assumed that. <laughs> about the candle world i didn't call it per se but i was like oh my god it's like when they said they were like you built your world upon an alien civilization and of course they did of course they did why wouldn't they have to be built upon wraithbone to be fair i actually assume a lot of worlds are built upon alien cemeteries because they they conquered them the thing seriously the they thing were the that, dominant race the thing that didn't but made me roll my eyes and be like, oh, hello, Indian burial ground, was when they're talking about the spires, and they're like, they're actually made from Xenos bones. I'm like, oh, my. okay. Well, and so here's the other thing that I don't understand. Like, they talk later about how the planet has, was basically the, was basically the waste treatment center for the webway which then all i can think about is it must be like the giant like the waste management centers where they like when you know when the cruise ships come in right. and they have to take care that's all i could picture but ugh. anyways so maybe that's why nurgle was so drawn to that world they kept mentioning and i even said this to my husband as soon as they got there they kept talking about the seven spires the seven sects the seven, 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 seven. I was like, oh, this is going to be some Nurgle shit. And then guess what? It, it was. was. And it was coming from inside the spires. It was, it was coming from inside the temple. Exclamation, exclamation. And you know what? That was another thing that I found it 
interesting. I always find this a little interesting because they talk about how there are worlds where the veil is very thin. Mm-hmm. And the warp pretty much bleeds through onto them. One of the problems I have with that, though, is why did no one notice this previously? Right. It's not like... Why are we just now noticing this? It's not like everything was fine until one day... That's exact, exactly what... And I really do have a problem with stuff really, like that. That's, but that's literally what happened here. Like, everything was fine until that one day. And only one person left the Scala. And now we know how she left. She gets to go live that over and over again. Yay, her. Um. Much. And you know, you know, the movie that did this best is still Poltergeist. The original mm. 1980s Polter, 1980 Poltergeist. Because they move into that... I'm about to spoil Poltergeist for people. Sorry, 40-year-old spoiler. Um, they move into the house, and they're only there for like a couple months before weird things start to happen, right? Because they move the headstones, but not the bodies. Um, but it's not one of those things where they're like, we've lived here for 10 years. But suddenly, no, like, weird stuff starts happening immediately. Right. Um, this world's been there for forever. And yeah, they do hint that like, okay, some stuff's been a little weird here and there, but by and large, and that was another one that I got to the end and it was like, because when he kept saying, he's like, the veil is so thin here. And? You can't have a bunch of battle sisters on a planet and not notice that the veil was thin. Seriously. You just it, seriously. You just can't. Nobody's spidey senses have been tingling, and it's not like, like not this a is, single person. Okay, this isn't like it's the Sisters of Silence planet, all right? Because they right. wouldn't notice. Because honestly, the veil would be totally null <laughs> with them hanging around. They wouldn't have to notice. Exactly, nothing would have gone wrong because they were there. Um, <sighs> Yeah, because when they really kind of came up, like, this is what is going on, is like, and nobody noticed this before now? This, yes, this Ober Veda guy may not have been there the whole time, like your memories are making making you think, but you can't tell me that there wasn't weird stuff always going on. Like, for example, Sister Batari. She wasn't was working, she wasn't working on these mutilated, oh, God, what, living art she was making that wasn't going on for just like the last couple of years well and that was something where I felt as though he had I felt as though he had a real purpose and a real idea behind all of these guys because he talks about how like with the silent witness Mm -hmm. right he's like oh that one is always like this and the bleeding woman I think it was that he was like that one is always obstinate always a problem to deal with that's kind of cool, right? Like, ah, oh, neat. There's going to be this, there's like all this, he's building this world and he's building this really cool backstory and this is going to be super plot relevant. Not really. They're just going to get killed and then question mark, question mark, question mark. Yeah. That was, I felt like they were building up to something so cool with that. No. I mean, but, you know, again, I mean, I look back at Bioshock Infinite because there are so many things in that game. Yes. I was like, I really want them to explore this and doesn't happen. 
so Bioshock Infinite, if you liked that game, if you haven't ever looked at the art book published by Dark Horse, I do and don't recommend it because I didn't like that game. The art book made me hate the game because to Carrie's point, they had all these cool concepts. I don't know if you remember early on in the game, it talks about why you can't get near her, right? And why don't look at her, don't get close to her. In the art book, it could explore this idea of these people being mutilated and stuck between dimensions. None of that gets done in there. None of it. And you know what? <laughs> Continuing with the Bioshock Infinite. You know what? They actually, with the Batori kind of reminded me of? Lady Comstock. Oh my god, yes. Big build-up. Big build-up. Big build-up. Worst just kind of a boss sh- fight. Boss fight. Ever. Just kind of a shitty boss fight. But that's, that's another one that don't look at the art book. Because they clearly had more they wanted to do with Lady Comstock. And it got left on the cutting room floor. But that remind she Batori reminded me of that where it's like we're building up and we're building this character and this big bad and then pfft. like when he resurrected her I just didn't care right yeah I it's like you're the artisan care. yeah okay whatever sure yeah I think she already was the artisan like did you really it, need to corrupt like, her you weren't really reaching that far with it but you know yeah no cool story no I didn't understand what the purpose of that was I didn't you know, with Sister Bougave, when he went into her story about how she was this kind of simpleton who preferred being around the dead because they weren't complicated. And then... She's okay, killed. She yeah, killed. Was I supposed to care? If they had done more with her, maybe. I might have. Maybe? Yeah. Like, I felt like I was supposed to have an emotional reaction there, and I just... I didn't really... The candle world in general, I just didn't really care. It just sounded like a a dump. <laughs> Nurgle. Anyway, sorry. Um, well, like, it just sounded... It honestly ooh. sounded like an overall mess, even for the Battle Sisters. Just because they were talking about, you know, the bronze candle and the silver candle and the candelabrum. And, you know, the the candle, the uh, the candle world... But then everyone has their own hierarchies. I'm like, you guys don't even know what you're doing. You're just sticking candle in front of everything. Pretty much. And I felt like at first I was like, okay, so maybe this is a commentary on the fact that because remember they talk about like how, oh my god, I can't even keep their hierarchy straight. Like maybe it was this commentary on how they've kind of lost their way because they've just, they've divided so much and they have so much hierarchy and so much politicking and so much of this kind of stuff. Mm, no, not really. I mean, that could have been there a little bit, but... Are you saying that, there, as you that said, they were trying or, to make some comparisons, some metaphor towards the ecclesiarchy? Yeah, pretty much. Because they were trying. They were trying. And, you know, along those lines, that, to me, Batori felt really tawdry. Like, as a character, it just pretty much felt like religious person bad. And I think it's because... And again, in horror movies and in books, the corrupted evil, maybe they think they're doing good, but they're clearly not, clergy person has been done to death. And that's kind of what she felt like to me. Right. Religious person bad. Well, it's not even just, not even just like 
overall literature, let's say we all be read as Warhammer 40k, we get it. Like, that's a pretty big thing that they've hammered home a lot, especially post-Rift. Yes. Ecclesiarchy, bad. Pretty much. And so, all right. Well, since we're continuing on, what was the point? What was the point of the whole Breacher storyline? You touched on this earlier with the razor lights, which, by the way, in my head, I kept referring to as the dead lights. Continuing with our, our king comparisons. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the point of all that? I have no idea. The only thing I could think of is to give maybe Aseneth an excuse to come on to come back home. It's just so weird because you know I think she, she could have just come on her own of her own volition. Well, that's what I mean. It's like it's just so weird because she's you know you're reading her writings in the very beginning and you're following along with it like you know she's been sent on this mission by this canonist to inspect the evil that may or may not be on this world and blah 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 and then you find out oh no Mercy killed her. Okay, so I don't know who you've been writing to this whole time, um, why you've been writing, and then who sent you here. Did anybody, or did you just decide to come in for giggles? So I think my take on that was that I hate repressed memories, too. By the way, guys, that's like another trope that I can't stand. So she's repressed these memories, right? And then, so I think, I think she kind of created her own reality. And remember, they talk about the violation. So I wonder if in getting her to the planet the violation she's forgotten that she killed the canoness so maybe the violation was like oh and by the way she also told you you need to go back oh yeah okay i can do that um i don't know that's a whole lot of inference from me i well you know kind of if you read the epilogue or the afterward after the epilogue i mean you're not supposed to really understand the ending anyway so whatever we're gonna get there in a bit Because I've got strong opinions. But anyways. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't... I mean, I guess the Breachers kind of got them there. But I was mildly interested in this alien world they went to. And this weird experience they had. Which was very much akin to the same thing that Jonah and the sisters experienced. When they're in the dome with the Zinchi lights. It just... And here's the part that I really, I struggle with. Because on one hand, I'm like, it seems so overly convoluted that you would, like, corrupt and mess these guys up just to get a sister to go to the planet because you need to enact this. But on the other hand, I'm also, like, fully within Zeech's idiom. That's true. I mean, it's, like, way over-engineered. It's the Rube Goldberg of plots. and Which is what Zeech would do. It tracks for Zeech. I could absolutely see him being like, yes, it's all coming together. <laughs> I yeah. just had that gift in uh, my head. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I actually have my songbird looking down at us right now, by the way, as we're ripping on this. Songbird is disappointed. Um, songbird guess- should be disappointed. Song! I'm not going to get started, but you deserved better. You deserve <laughs> better, buddy. Um Speaking of another plot line that got totally friggin' forgotten. Um, you're supposed to feel so sad when she kills the songbird. And no, sorry, we didn't know him well enough. 
Uh, same with the breachers, really. Some of the breachers, like, I think I was supposed to feel sorry, like, sad when they died. But other ones, I was like, we didn't really know you that well. Like, Reese, at the end. I was like, I... Alas, poor York. Exactly. We, Yeah, we didn't know you at all. I, I guess I just didn't understand. Well, and I was going to be separated from them anyway because they were all dead men walking. It was very obvious. They were yes. all, if not 80% of them, were dead men walking. Yes, very much so. And again, like the whole with LaMarche holding on to the fact that he was a commissar and trying to fight against the corruption, I liked that. But in the end, I mean... <laughs> I'm sorry, when he takes out Tolan Feist, or the Incarnate, or whatever they're calling him now, when he takes him out with the incendiary grenade, my first thought was, that's it? Apparently, yes. Well, I mean... Gotta wrap up the storyline somehow. And again, what was the point? I don't know. They could have totally have let Aseneth kill Feist on the Tabula Rosa Tabula Rasa and I don't think much would have changed it wouldn't have and you know I, I guess again you could fall back on the well there's no clear answers it's mysterious that's kind of true but I always think about this kind of stuff in terms of word problems you're asking me to figure out how long it takes a train traveling 65 miles per hour to get to its destination, but you haven't given me the start or the end point. Like, you know when you get the word problems and it's like you have to choose the answer and then one of them is there's not enough information here? There's not enough information here for so many of these things. Like, what was the point of the preacher's story? Not enough information here. That's pretty much like the whole thing, in my opinion. I guess, it, to me, it just felt like, ooh, isn't it sad about this guy? Also, zombies! Everybody loves zombies! Well, well, I'll put it this way. When they were on the ship, the blood of, blood of Demeter, and when the flies happened, I was like, okay. First of all, I'm already annoyed because I'm thinking Amityville Horror and I don't know how many other religious horror things out there. But then, yeah, the mark of pestilence. But and then we get to the whole chapel scene, and she can't run out of the corridor. Uh, you know, them with them sewed the eyes shut, and she comes back in, and they're all slaughtered and everything. And my initial response was, "Okay, I see how they're trying to be scary, right?" But it just—I'm sorry—it doesn't have that same. The same scary that you get when the Gellerfield fails. Pretty much. And, and I think, that's... and I can tell that's what he was trying to go for in his own way, but and maybe this isn't very fair because I've read all this stuff already. I've read A Ghost Ship before. I've read the mysterious murders that happen. I've read books where it's like they people look all very strange and they got weird piercings and they're all sewn up and the next minute they look just fine what was all of that about you know 
That has been so overdone as well. I just... Ugh. Well, okay. So, let's... Let's talk really quickly about arguably the oddest plot in this whole book that comes out of left field, I thought. Athanasius' story. Which, <laughs> did he have on the one? nose there. I mean, did he really have one? I mean... Okay, yes. That's a great question. We know that he's going to eventually become this great captain of the Angels Resplendent. That's nice. Like, we never... So he drew things. We never got to see what he drew, what he saw, what his point was, um, why Batari was even using him. He's like, well, she has me draw things. Okay, like what? Like, what are you drawing? Yeah, why? Again, not enough information. Like, what, so, is, what is she using it for? Just, I either want what you're drawing or why she's having you draw it. I want answers to one of those questions because then the other one doesn't matter as much. You don't have to give me everything. You don't have to spell it out for me, but you got to give me something. Exactly. <laughs> Again, going to the word problem, I have to know the start and the desk. Like, you have to give me more information here to be able to solve for X. Right. And I understand that Athanasius, as the Angel's Resplendent, is probably going to be in another one of Peter Ferrari's books. I know because he has a book about the Angel's mm -hmm. Resplendent coming out this year. But that doesn't have any bearing on this particular narrative, other than for his own world, because I know that I've read online that all of his books, this concept of the coil, kind of all, they all join together slightly. So I get that. Yeah, but so, uh, hmm. so Stephen King again, Randall Flagg. <laughs> actually, so do you know what it reminded me a lot of actually? I don't know. I know you haven't watched Stranger Things, but in the third Second season of Stranger Things. Second? Yeah, second. Doesn't matter. Yes, yeah, I think it's the second. Doesn't matter. You're right. Anyways, there's this really bad episode of Stranger Things where Eleven runs away and she runs into all these other people who were also experiments. Like she are, she is, she are, she is, and they also have mental powers as well. And the whole episode feels very out of line with the rest of the series. Okay. And the whole purpose of it was for the creators of Stranger Things to say, oh, by the way, there's a whole other world out here that we haven't explored for a spinoff. That's really what this felt like to me, was that Athanasius was basically just this world-building spinoff. And at the end, I actually thought to myself for a long time there, I was like, you totally forgot about the kid, didn't he? Then you get to the end and the angels are splendid, right? Right. I was like, oh, for God's sake. I just... So let's... Oh, that was another thing that I found funny. Hmm. Angels are splendid. Uh, when uh, Aseneth is recalling her time with uh, Father... Deliverance. Father Deliverance. Because that's not an ominous name. Father Deliverance and... <laughs> They're having, they're trying to convert these people and they end up bringing the angels resplendent in and the angels resplendent come in, kill everybody, 
and then leave and they're like they just left us I'm like is that what the space marines do that that's how the angels do friend <laughs> I mean, that made um, me laugh i did like that i, I did, did also and like- i have seen that and so like you can say that's been overdone as well but i still laugh every single time that i that i read that it's just kind of like oh you poor poor normal humans Actually, the other thing that I liked about that is when the sister was like, no, we need to go down there and punish them through flame and fire. And the angel resplendent is like, well, maybe we should try a more diplomatic approach. When the sons of Sanguinius are asking for diplomacy, things have officially gone plain shaped (laughs) Like, what, what even? This is how you knew it was Zinch. Because, again, the sons of the angel are like, let us not just go kill people willy-nilly. <laughs> Maybe we should try yeah, using our words, do. brother. <laughs> right. <laughs> then we'll kill them and eat them. God. Uh, I did think that was kind of funny. But then again, you know what? I didn't really understand what was the point of that either. It was amusing to me, but there's no. It was point. it was amusing, but I was like, "Well, it's like serve why she kind of cracked." Uh, I mean, I guess because she believed in Father Deliverance, and then he lied to her again. Ecclesiarchy and power, bad. They break exactly. The, they Religious break their promises. Dad. He promised exactly. he's only going to make her do this once. So let's talk about the ending. Because a whole bunch of stuff happens in the ending. Does it? Does it? Yes-ish. Alright, so look. Okay, I gotta get this rant off of my chest. Because we've Mm -hmm. talked a little bit about this. And I kind of got an eye twitch when she mentioned Randall Flagg. Because yes, Randall Flagg hops through all of Stephen King's worlds. Right? He is the man in black. Um, He even hopped through the children's or young adult book. He yes, wrote. he did. Well, now, to be fair, Randall Flagg is an interesting kind of fun character, right? But, um, so let us talk for a moment about the Dark Tower series. If you have not read the Dark Tower series, don't. Um, I so have the Dark not Tower read it series. because my friends were like, he's never going to finish it. Uh, he did, unfortunately. Um, so it's. Is it seven books now or eight? I, I can't remember it was how nine. Many. It might be nine. You guys, I can't remember how many books are in the series now. But <laughs> arguably, there's only like nine. three that are good. <laughs> that's, that's genuinely funny. So there's really only like three books in the series that are good. One that's truly great. I cannot recommend The Wizard in Glass enough because you can pick it up without really reading the rest of the story and pretty much understand what's going on. And it's a beautiful book. But... The rest of the series, it gets a little weird. Um, so at the end of the Dark Tower series, the last book, you read all the way up through the book and they give you this ending, right? Excellent. And then there's a note from Stephen King where he says to the reader, look, if you want to have the ending that you have just read, stop here. Do not read the epilogue. There is nothing beyond this that will give you any answers and you might not like it. And then you go and you read the epilogue 
and then you want to set the book on fire because the epilogue has Roland. He kind of realizes what the Dark Tower is. And then once he kind of realizes what the Dark Tower is, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody because it's, it's, it takes way too long to explain. Um, the very last line of the epilogue is the first line from the first book. Stephen King hits the reset button and the whole series starts over again, basically saying that everything that has happened has now been undone and he's going to start this over and maybe it'll be the same. Maybe it'll be a little different. So when I got to the epilogue of this book, I, so my husband and so I was were both So was it the so epilogue pissed. or was it the afterward? It's, so no, no, not the afterward. It's right before the epilogue. Um, there's a note where from Peter Vahavari, where he says, I don't have that. What? Hold on. Yeah, where it's it's on page, oh, it's on 297 of my, where he says, steal no. yourself, traveler, for the road you've chosen oh, won't be easy. You'll oh. find no joy and precious little glory along the way, let alone the hope of a better tomorrow at journey's end. If you crave immaculate answers, you'd best turn back now. Oh, I just he, thought that was Jonah writing. No. Well, I think it is, but it's also kind of Peter Fahavari. And then it goes into the epilogue, and the epilogue basically... Other than sending Athanasius to be with the Angels Resplendent, Sister Genoa wakes up back on the blood of Demeter. Right. And it is heavily implied that the world basically just resets. Well, but you kind of knew that anyway. Yes, but the fact that he basically steals the whole thing. Steals is a strong word. He is inspired by heavily... By the ending of the Dark Tower, really? Now, if you ha- again, if you haven't seen this particular magic trick done, I get it. But and maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe it's because it triggered that rage that I had at the end of the Dark Tower series, where it's like, what was the point of any of this? Okay, so again, I didn't read the Dark Tower series. So I didn't pick up on that particular thing. I mean, so I read that and I was just like, okay. I mean, right before it, it says the circle closes and spins anew. It was right there. It already said that this was, this was going into another loop. And I already knew that. And um, so the rest of that was like, okay, whatever. I don't care. And I was reading it. And yes. So it spoke bitter back out into the blood of Demeter. It's like, oh, okay. So we all get to go through this again and again. Amen. Uh, so that actually didn't trigger anything in me. That just didn't bother anything because I was like, well, we already knew this was going to be a loop anyway. To be fair. It was the afterward that pissed me off. Yeah. I'll let you take that one. I mean, it's just uh, you know, it's like, doubtless you want answers, although I warrant you there weren't any to be had. Okay. Stop writing then. Why did you write this? You're just now taunting in a face. Basically, this is saying, oh, did you want like a real answer? Well, you're not getting one. That's nice. You don't right. need to spell that out for me. I got it. And then he's like, right. this is all the true nature of chaos. There is no answer. Again, I got it. Well, and part of me, to that point, part this of me kind of wonders. always be plagued by false prophets. Okay, Iron Rand. I got the points at your first speech. You know? Pretty much. Well, and 
part of me also wondered because you know a requiem is just a song or a poem or a story told for the souls of the dead mm-hmm. right so is this book just purgatory are all of these people stuck in this god-awful Zinchian purgatory like is that what's going on here i guess except for athanasius and i'm gonna guess you know how the hell does that guy get out then well solanus and uh you know santino if they're found to be not corrupted or whatever i have no idea what's going to happen there maybe because the angels are splendid i mean they could probably figure out a way to to get out kind of out of there right because that's just kind of what the angels do Maybe that's like maybe that's the thing is that every cycle some people escape purgatory. I don't know. That seems to really suck though for that one sister though. Kind of remembers everything and now she's on the blood of Demeter. It's like wait, what the hell? Right. Well, and it just I don't know, you guys. Overall, I found this book to be tropey in the the prose. I found to be so pretentious it the number of five dollar words and the number of five dollar words that he clearly just learned because for example at one point sister begave talks about how she's not sorry that somebody's dead because she always was a harian and then like in the next 20 pages harian gets used like three more times and then it's never used before or after and there were a few words like that where he had clearly just learned a new word and he used it a lot and then never again. And I'm not talking about ochre. I know. You have ruined Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat for me, Peter Farhavari. Because you have, the very first time I ever heard that word was in that musical. It's the one where they're singing the colors of the coat. It's a great musical. It's funny. It's genius. And you have ruined it for me because of your overuse of the word ochre. I feel like ochre. Find if I ever, a new word. I feel like if I worked at the Black Library like as an editor, I would outlaw ochre. Because it gets used a lot in the Imperial Guard, too. Like, they are constantly meeting people who have ochre fatigues. Which... To say cool. dirt brown... Just say, yeah, brown. Or burnt or, orange, whatever. Dirt okay. yellow. I mean, right. I don't care. There's like, there's so many. Ochre just, ochre was fun in this particular song because it started off with like the normal colors and then it was going into like, you know, the 128 Crayola <laughs> pack with, with the colors. But this is like, saying something is ochre, you're just now being pretentious. Well, it just, there was a, there was a line, there was, I think I bookmarked the page. Let me see if I can find it. Um, oh, where was it? There was a section where I read it aloud to my husband and he was just like, oh, okay, uh, Headley Lamar. And because some of the words, they were just so excessively like never. And maybe it's because I was a technical writer for so long, but don't take 30 words to say 10. Like, and there was a lot of the stuff in here where it was just like, <laughs> again, it reminds me of that scene in Blazing Saddles where my mind is a cascading whirlpool of imagination. Yeah, it just, it reminds, and then I couldn't stop giggling because everything read like he- I read in Hedley Lamar's voice. Um, 
Thugs, bugs, pugs. Um, I don't know, you guys. I really didn't like this book, and I, I really wanted to. Like, I really, really went into this book wanting to like it. Yeah, I went into this with a goal. I was like, I'm going to prove Jenna's wrong. She's a snob. No, and I, and I am kind of. So I'm totally willing to admit that. I and I do feel a little bad because I feel as though I've spent the majority of this podcast basically being like, Simpsons did it. But we've seen a lot of this. We've seen this these tricks before, and I do say that like sometimes. So if you've read the site at all, you may have noticed that I really liked David Annandale's House of Night and Chain. And House of Night and Chain is not necessarily an original book. It's just a haunted house story in Warhammer 40k. It's very similar to like Burnt Offerings or the House on the Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my jam. I really liked it. I liked the execution. I thought it was really well done. So maybe if like this is a chocolate in your peanut butter moment where you're like, dude, they combined Bioshock Infinite and multiple personalities, sold. Totally understand. Um, but this is one of the books where I would really welcome, especially in our comments, if you're listening to, if you really like this book, I would love to hear why. Like, right. and I, and I don't oh, mean I, that like, yeah, I, I, I would too. I don't mean that accusatorily. I just mean like, I would love to hear what I miss or why this worked for you. Cause mm-hmm. I'm very interested. Right. Because there's even books that I like and Jen doesn't or Jen likes and I don't. And we always find it very interesting. Well, this is why I liked it or this is why I didn't like it. It's like, okay, I kind of understand that. And I would love to understand what what, what I'm missing. Because right now, the only thing I can think of is just that, I guess, again, I think what the biggest hang up, though, I really do, is that it's the alternate dimensions thing. That just ruined it. And it will ruin it for me every single time without fail time travel and alternate universes i just can't do it you guys i just can't i really can't um there's actually a lot of stuff in here that the multiple personalities i really i'm just just over that that i'm just over it i'm over that i and you know what honestly i think as soon as they mentioned he talked about the land survey and the wraith bone like was clearly wraith bone that they found Mm mm-hmm Sorry, Josh Reynolds burnt that into the ground with me right. because we read all of the Fabius Bile series. Um, I, as much as I love Lords of Silence, I'm pretty much I'm, I'm good on Nurgle for a while. It, I think it was unfortunate that it was kind of just there was like a list of things where I was like, mm, mm, no, no. No, of course. And the other thing, like I even told you today, this book reminded me a lot of. I know we pretend this movie doesn't exist, but it reminds me a lot of Spider-Man 3, the Tobey Maguire movie. And the biggest yes. problem that that movie had was that there was so much going on. It was too much for them to try to get it into one story. And so what happened? It ended up being a mess, a complete mess. Yes. And that is, I think that's probably, like, obviously not the narrative structure, but you were spiritually... You are absolutely correct, and it's the best comparison. Like, we have said multiple times that Spider-Man 3, they either should have picked Hobgoblin, Venom, or Sandman. 
pick one and focus on it, Mm -hmm. trying to split their attention. And I felt as though had they just focused on Asenath and Sister Mercy's story, or had they just focused on Jonah's story, or even if they had focused on those two, like pick two of your stories and just stick with it. Right. If you're going to focus on Asenath and Sister Mercy, then focus on the Breacher's story. If you're going to focus on Jonah's story, then I guess maybe focus on... Uh, the candle world in general Mm -hmm. and why it's so important and all the stuff that's going on there or Jonah and the breachers. You could have probably made work sister mercy in the candle world, roaring rampage of revenge. It was just too much. And there were too, too little information and too many open questions, too many uh, plates trying to spin. Yes. And too many got forgotten about. Yes. And dropped and just, it's Spider-Man 3, complete with emo dancing Tobey Maguire. <laughs> I will say, though, because this book was very long, too. I'm really excited. Our next book is a lot shorter. And it's by the ineffable Guy Haley. Guy Haley, yes. And, it's and another we're going... Merce, another crime story. I'm so excited. And it's a buddy cop. It is a buddy cop. I'm really excited for this book and i think this is going to be i again i'm so glad we read brutal cunning before we read uh requiem infernal because it kind of got us like okay we've got a good laugh now let's go into the serious i think this is going to be a nice i think this will be a nice i I, I have a feeling this will be in between like won't be as funny as brutal cunning but i'll still have some of gee haley's little he does make me laugh very much so even stuff in devastation of ball i snickered at um just because they got devoured (laughs) oh them (laughs) let's bring in you're welcome let's bring in this chapter and kilt by the way this one also has a glossary i saw that earlier today yeah so i am so excited to read this i think it's gonna be a nice breezy iron iron fungus that just happened to my eyes just went straight to iron fungus. Hmm. I love it. Okay. But yeah, I'm really excited. I think this will be a nice... If you like... If you loved Requiem Infernal, I'm so sorry. I, I hope we I hope we can all still be friends. <laughs> yes. Please. I mean, if Jen and I can still be friends after some of the disagreements we've had over... Uh, let's see. Comics. Movies. Video games name it like it's okay it's okay that we it's okay that we hated this book and you loved it it's really okay you want to take us out carrie i can go read a murder mystery i would like to read a murder mystery and try to get this thing off my face it's driving me crazy (laughs) you've listened to it is cute but yeah i shouldn't have put it so high up on my eye uh, you've listened to the Warhammer 40k book club episode regarding Requiem Infernal by Peter Fahervari. Be sure to join us for our next book, Flesh and Steel by Guy Haley. We are an unofficial book club and not affiliated with the Black Library or any of its affiliates. You can find both the vidcast and podcast on our website, wh40kbookclub.com. If you like this episode, sorry if you don't. Please like, subscribe, give a review, and all those things to the vidcast on YouTube or the podcast on anywhere you get podcasts. 
don't forget, we also have a Patreon where we offer two tiers of content for your viewing and listening pleasure. You can learn more about that at patreon.com slash WH40K book club. Our site also has articles about our adventures in reading other Warhammer 40K books and short stories outside of the book club books. So please stay well and read from a crack. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Warhammer 40k book club is hosted by Jen Bozier and me. Recording and editing of both the vidcast and podcast were done by me. The book club questions and discussion format were done by Jen, and all of our music is by Jingle Punks. The Warhammer 40k book club is a Warhammer LLC production. This is a Voxcast that even he, Cato Sicarius, would approve.